This is ETC, encouraging teacher conversation. Here's your hosts, Vivian Neal and Alison Pegas. Welcome to ETC, encouraging teacher conversation. My name is Vivian Neal and my co-host is Alison Pegas, who's an independent educational consultant across all sectors in teaching and learning in Australia. She's a past principal too and has been a member of the National Executive of the Primary Principals Association Australia, known as APA. She's an international baccalaureate school evaluator and right now is working across schools and organisations, focusing particularly around people performing in teams and managing that with purpose. Welcome, Alison. Hi, Vivian, and hello, everyone. Right, so tell me a little bit about your career for the listeners, Alison, because we're all dying to know a little bit more about you. Well, where does one start? I'll have to be very... I'll have to abbreviate quite a long career because I have been in education for over 30 years, but I guess I did get interested very early as a young teacher in praise feedback, uh, how groups worked, and I was lucky in my first year out to have an extremely good teacher next door, which I, I still think is one of the, the, the best ways a young teacher can start if they're lucky enough to have a brilliant mentor. So I'd graduated with an interest in psychology and I'd done my honours in psychology, so I was interested in that area. It made me go out on a limb and become specialised sort of early, and I guess the more I learned, the more I realised I didn't know. So I went from variety of schools over my early career, K-12 schools, district schools, regional, remote, city, small schools with difficult kids. And then I moved into the independent sector in New South Wales and I taught in very expensive high-fee-paying schools, uh, single-sex and co-ed. So during that time, I also extended my postgraduate work into again around thought and the construction of self so still operating in the thinking and the affective domain I guess a lot of my uh, own academic work has been in and, and then has my career has followed that kind of path some of my colleagues and peers became interested very early in more management roles and also became more interested in the whole organization and orchestration of a school so do you think that um, since you began teaching, uh, things have changed enormously? Because certainly uh, I began in, I hate to say this, 1983. And uh, certainly in the UK, we were still very much teaching in silos. You know, once you were in your classroom, you were uh, very much the boss and nobody seemed to ask what you were doing and actually communicating across the organisation, um, didn't seem to be part of our um, modus operandi at all. Very similar, and very similar starting date, I have to admit. Uh, yes, you did, we did have that closed door, and you're qualified now. You had a year of probation, that kind of process here. But, yes, it was very much, you're qualified now, you're really supposed to be getting on with it. You can get the difficult children as well as an experienced teacher could get it. And you were expected to cope. And as I said before, if you were lucky enough to get a good mentor, you probably did cope. One of the one of the differences is now that we are aware that beginning teachers are that. They are genuine beginners and that it's the responsibility of the rest of us to make sure 
they begin in a way that we want them to continue instead of beginning in the way that they were taught before they learn any different to that. Yes, because if you're not careful, you just bring your own um, ideas of teaching from how you were in school, which is highly inappropriate. Uh, one anecdote, um, when I was uh, in my first year, uh, my head of department used to spend his lunchtime reading the newspaper and by about 10 to 2 would be asleep behind it. And I was having a little bit of a difficulty and... Um, I said, I'm terribly sorry to disturb you, but can I just ask you something about whatever text I was teaching? And he said, look, Vivian, he said, you're experienced, you're intelligent enough, you know what you're doing, I have every confidence in you. And he went back to his paper. <laughs> so that was my, um, you know, help and mentoring. In some ways, though, if you think about it, thinking about also what we know about risk and error, we were freed to make error without an audience. True. Which for some people worked, but whilst we've continued to do that, we've compounded those errors as well. Yes, because... You know, we have the right mindset about the experimentation. I have to add, for me, it, the interest that got me right into being a researcher in my own class was through my own postgraduate work and getting students involved in research. It really changed how I taught from thinking I actually was an expert. Quite early in my career, I had that realisation that there is so much I don't know about this and that the kids actually can tell you much more than we give them credit for. And, of course, that's very, very important now. Um, we can't ever predict in the same way as perhaps we could um, where our students are coming from uh, because with the internet and with the access to education generally, uh, like never, never before, uh, we have a lot of experts um, in our classrooms every single day. Um, and I think putting yourself in the position of learner does inform your teaching. There's no doubt about that. Yes, I agree. And in fact, you really are the senior learner in the room. Yes, and that's a very different approach, isn't it? Yeah, and it's two levels of different approach in that even if the students saw you as a senior learner, unless you see yourself as one, you're not either. It has to be a stated role for students seeing the teacher thinking aloud about what they are gleaning from the group as well. And I had an example very early in my career of a teacher who, who showed me that, who modelled that. Everything that she did, she said to the students, why might I be doing that? And at the time that she was doing that kind of conversation with her students, she was shocking them. In fact, the similar look of shock on the face of the students in Dylan Williams, the, the, the Welsh researcher, the work that he's done with students, they have similar disbelief on their face. I'm surprised that students in today's world still have disbelief on their face when they're asked for an opinion. And I think that is really, really important and actually giving time. Nobody ever gave time for students to think. You would ask a question and say, right, who knows the answer to this? Oh, no one? Okay, let's move on type thing. Whereas you actually do need time to process. And as professionals, we also need to reflect and be reflexive in our approach to how we're teaching, our roles, the narratives we're creating, um, yes. and where, where we see ourselves and our students developing. It's not just a case of... Um, transmission is it no interesting that you say the narrative like that too because that word that was the transmission narrative that 
the gumball machine or the empty box narrative. Yeah. But the, the other narrative is the one that you opened with in that first question about the, the silos. The new narrative that we're moving towards, gradually one would have to say, but is, is a collaborative one. It's got and, to be. You know, because the connections are, the experts are in your room, as you say. Our current narrative has to be much, much more collaborative about teacher practice so that we don't have a silo of here's a group of teachers that we know do fabulous work and whose students regularly produce in advance of a year's worth of progress. Here's a group of teachers that we know regularly don't. I think that's really important because, you know, in the past, um, people were very cagey about what they were actually doing in their classrooms. And many, many people didn't want to share. And if somebody was set up as an example of good practice, uh, there was almost like a mealy mouthed approach. Oh, well, she she knows what she's doing or she's got lots of resources. Um, And what I found really interesting, um, some, let me think... 10 or more, 15 years ago, I was working in um, further education and we started putting courses online in what we called blended learning, where we were actually teaching some uh, physical classes and some were actually forming themselves online uh, for students who couldn't get into the college. Um, And so therefore you had to put your courses online, accessible to anyone. And there was so much resistance to that you know, as if to say, well, someone's going to see my notes, someone's going to steal what I'm doing. It was quite crazy. Um, And I think there's still an element of that. But the most important thing for me um, is that we have to be collaborative. We have to be open. We have to start, you know, linking everything. If you look at how data is shaping the way we are living our lives, uh, we've got to make sure that everyone is talking to everyone else. Otherwise, you end up not communicating at all in the milieu that we're kind of living in. Which ends up being making those silos even more pronounced. Yeah. And that access thing is a very big part of what we're talking about too. You know, the, the, the change in what's, what's accessible, what we can get to remote areas, what we can get to teachers in, in different ways in terms of their professional learning. Yeah, I mean, we've got to uh, really think about this and, you know, start with the teachers. You know, if they are being collaborative, if they're trying to generate change, being creative, being flexible, being dynamic and being agile, then that is a really sound starting point, in my opinion. Yes, again, getting to beginning teachers in terms of the flexibility of their thinking is not really the big issue. They are very flexible thinkers. Dealing with the flexibility and the, and the, the unfettered access that younger teachers have to information is one thing. Helping them know what to do with it is the professional learning component of that, isn't it? But they have access to so much more. They can get a lesson plan. They can get a lesson plan that we, we, we spent the night before writing yeah and we made the aids to probably go with the lesson as well (laughs) but all of that's there it's the which shows us it's the how you do how you use that strategy in the classroom that makes the differences to its effect I mean, as a teacher trainer, um, I have sat in the back of lessons um, observing and obviously writing reports. And I've looked at the most fabulous resources that I've sat at the back of the class feeling wholly inadequate. But Mm -hmm. 
the way they were actually utilised didn't ever seem to have any point. You know, it was um, all singing, all dancing, but nothing really happened. And it was interesting because um, the kids would be turning around to look at me as if to say, we're not getting anywhere. And I thought that was fascinating because, you know, the whole setup of the room, you know, all the bits and pieces on the desk was absolutely fabulous. But the teaching and learning that stemmed from that was virtually non-existent. And you could get away with that. Again, I guess get away with it may not be the right word. In fact, it's teachers could be left to develop no improvement in their practice for many years because we haven't had that feedback from an adult and we haven't used students as feedback. And the big one is we haven't actually monitored in the way we can now student progress over time with such accuracy and related to the practices in which those students, you know, those students have been subjected to. Yeah. So so what um, do you think is your main focus at the moment? And how would you like to see schools evolving? I'm heartened by the way that I'm seeing, that many of us are seeing in Australia, and that is increasing focus on evidence-based practice, which which means a whole lot more sharing between teachers. So I... So I, I I think the focus that I'm certainly taking and seeing in my work that, that most people respond to is increasing connection between staff staff members. So I guess that's asking for a greater autonomy for school principals to create culture and make decisions, big decisions that have effect on culture. There is a, There's increasing autonomy for school principals in Australia, which can go either way, obviously, but um, that autonomy can lead to staff selection, it can lead to professional learning decisions, but it can it can make a big dis- difference, the decision-making they have around their leadership, what they do with their leadership. So if we're going to actually see this, a collaborative approach spreading, we need to see more bravery, I think, from principals, which we are seeing, and the, and the move that's allowing that to happen is the increasing autonomy to schools. Is there any sort of negative aspect of that? I mean, if you have very charismatic um, principals who are taking risks and are very autonomous, um, does that mean that the differentiation between different schools uh, might be vast? Or has that always been like that? Well, it has always been like that. uh, Anecdotally, I dealt with a principal recently who had moved her school's performance incredibly over the, over the past six years that she'd been at the school. So they're in a low socioeconomic area. They, their children were performing well below where the national average and in the six years those students have made over a year's increase in their time. So their progress has been incredibly high. But their achievement is still only just meeting average. So she's made some very brave decisions, but there is nothing to compel the person who takes the role of following her to continue doing that. In fact, the forces the forces at work would tempt a principal who comes in for a short stay to do quick fixes and see high marks from a smaller group of students. So that's, there's, a, there's a really good example where taking the brave stance may not have been the popular one. And there is the downfall, there's the appointment, all of the issues.
issues around appointing principals to positions, I guess, too. But it's making those decisions when you're in there. And I think that differential between schools in a, in in that you have, clearly you have in England, but yes, we do have in Australia and will be there, is there between the sectors anyway. Mm-hmm. They appoint senior people in a very different way. Yes, that's very true. So your work then uh, performing in teams and managing that with purpose, um, could you tell us a bit more about what that work involves? Most of my work is with either uh, the senior teams in small businesses or organisations and in schools, but mostly with schools. So it's looking at the collaborative models in the, actually at use in the school a lot of the time. So what teams? Now, we all know schools are made of teams, There are teams within teams in all schools. And if those teams are working well with a level of autonomy and clarity of process, then many of the things that bottleneck for school leadership, executive teams, don't become bottlenecks. So I work with executives of schools to look at their their context. What are the big issues that they actually need to have focused teams on in their strategic planning and then I work within the dynamics of the teams so with the leaders of the teams creating dynamics that work and and that is about working as you do in a classroom all of the things that are that I do in my work with senior teams is mod that they can model again with their staff and staff can model again in a child version for students so that they are at each level a learning focus so it's collaborative learning. I'm really setting, helping, helping them set up in their in their schools. Now, what that has led to is greater handing on of the baton that is the culture of good practice in the pockets of the school, because it will be teachers who are passionate about particular aspects of the school who will be the leaders of those teams. That is just how human nature works on those on in a, in a team situation in the schools are no different. So it's looking at how do groups develop, how do you facilitate that connection between group and get the clarity and the passion in the same spot. And often when you look at groups in schools in a um, more random way, in your obvious way, so in a way that allows teachers to follow passion, not necessarily the school's major focus, the teacher's passions, the movement forward in those schools after several years is exponential. I have several examples where that is the case. Um, after after you know several years of of uh, changing their group structure each time according to people's passions, and every time their markers on their KPIs for their school performance were bettered, and it is counterintuitive. So, do you think there's any way of putting in um, procedures? that circumvent the need for charismatic teachers. (laughs) Sorry, that's being really devil's advocate here. Yeah, uh, I actually call that the cult of personality. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, and it's a very easy trap because it's very easy to do, to have students, to have teachers who actually don't realise they're using a cult of personality to um, motivate their students, which isn't intrinsically generative of learning you know continuous learning for the students uh you're really looking at that notion of reducing in school variance which is about that collaborative model because what the data does tell us about that is that there's over a 60 percent chance 
a variation between teachers in schools, whereas differences between schools in similar areas of similar students, their differences are in the 30s usually. So the difference that matters is when you have inconsistency through your school, and I see that as the way to answer your question in terms of is there a way of standardising? Well, no, you wouldn't want your doctors all to be the same either, but you wouldn't want them to be handling um, an infectious disease without the proper sanitation. Yeah. There are ways that we know that work better than others. And I, and I think once the, the profession is honest about those conversations, look, we know some of these practices are substantially more effective than these practices used in this way. So I, I think the more the conversation is around that in the profession, totally honestly about this is a really good teaching practice, this teacher uses this practice in this way. I think that's a great model for us to be having. So we need a basic um, professional benchmarking um, that says, look, this is the baseline yeah. um, and we want well, to do better than this, but... I guess once you have start those conversations, what you see is once teachers start saying, well, this is what this student's done, this is what this student's done, the next question becomes, because it becomes the elephant in the room, well, what is our standard here? What are we benchmarking this against? Particularly for subjects like art and music and phys ed where, for, you know, they haven't had such lockstep descriptors. In, you know, there's been a much more lockstep descriptor in literacy and numeracy in those kind of standard-setting syllabus standard setting developmental continua based documentation whereas once the conversations start between teachers over student work moderation kind of conversations they very quickly get to the point that says what is the standard here which makes them say what is the standard in our context which makes them say how do we know which makes them look at their assessment task and you get to that then that work backwards i want them to understand this this is, this is how they would demonstrate it. Okay, that is what my assessment task needs to look like. Now, coming back to your question about can we standardise, can we, which is really what your question about avoiding the teacher who is just working on charisma, mm. you know, can we identify some behaviours? They have to come from the professional understanding. We know that about any learning and experience require, is required for us to shift our thinking in any way that's enduring. So teachers have to come to that realisation through conversation, through teacher dialogue. And I'm sounding possibly quite dogmatic about that and it's possibly because that's how I feel about that. Well, I haven't seen teachers change their practice without there being some cognitive dissonance around something they're currently doing. Right. I mean, have you seen the film Dead Poets Society? Yes. For me, that is very much the cult of personality and mm -hmm. I get very frustrated uh, and I used to use uh, excerpts of that film with my um, students in training um, to say this is exactly what you don't want to do in a school. Um, and so many other people say, oh my God, it's so fabulous, it's amazing, I'd love to have been inspired in that way. Um, but there's some real fundamental issues in the, in the narrative of that yeah. particular film that I... I wring my hands, I have to say. But I also use the Mona Lisa smile as a, as a, as a, a, a training one as well because uh, there's some surfies in there as well and they all relate to that wonderful 
quote that people get given to put on their desk when they first become a teacher. Something about, you know, you're really going to change minds and lives and and uh, that is the dead poet fantasy. Even though it is true for many people once, if, if you consider how many teachers they had in their life also, and then, if, then there's that, and then there's the message we're giving to teachers that it's about being charismatic that matters, it's, that is that awful message. Well, on that on that note, <laughs> perhaps we'll um, leave it there and come back to uh, this heated debate um, when we talk again next week. So thank you very much, Alison, for all your observations. And I'm sure that listeners will have an awful lot to say and respond to. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian.